hear God's word, recognizing our dependence on the Holy Spirit to speak to us and through the word today. Um, Let's quiet our souls, let's quiet our spirits as I pray this for us. God, the Holy Spirit, we are desperate in desperate need of the grace to hear your voice. To lay down our lives so that you may give us your life. Life for here, life for forever. We confess our dullness, our idolatry, our selfishness, our arrogance. In professing to be wise, we are fools. In professing to be good, we are profane. In professing to be whole, we are utterly scattered. Yet we are not without hope. Our hope is in you. Our hope is in your gospel. Our hope is in your loving kindness towards us. May we walk in the names that you call us, not the names of the world. You call us forgiven, beloved, and holy. Teach us to walk in those names. Teach us to call others the same. God, the Holy Spirit, now give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love and obey, and minds to discern you and all that is good and true and beautiful. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. I would add to our prayers this week, um, Brian's mom, Grace's grandma, uh, Mona Holt, her service, memorial service was Monday, I believe. She just passed away recently with that. So continue to pray for the Holt family, as well as for uh, Blair Huddleston. They had to stay another night. The surgery, it's turned out okay, but they just had to stay down there a little bit longer as they go. In his 2018 bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote for Chaos, Canadian clinical psychologist and psychology professor Jordan Peterson offers up, you guessed it, 12 Rules for Living. Uh, Number one, stand up straight with your shoulders back. That's rule number one among the 12. Uh, Number five, I particularly like this one. Do not let your children do anything that will make you dislike them. I thought that was, like, that's really good. That's really good there. He, He missed it on a couple. One of them was, like, stop and pet every cat that you see. Like, not into that. He lost me with that. But Peterson's book, as popular as it has become, is definitely not the first guide for living, not the first rule book for life. I mean, we see it everywhere, right? Bumper stickers and mugs and mottos and decorative sayings that you put on the wall, live, life, eat, cake, what, eat dessert first, you know? Mottos for living. I mean, we've had these all throughout history, and there's a reason for this. Because like it or not, 
We need rules to live by. We need things to help us navigate. We need ways of understanding and of ordering the chaos of our lives, ordering the chaos of what we encounter in the world. So we have to establish when we start to talk about rules from the very start, it's not are we going to have rules or not. It's a fallacious argument. The argument is which rules are we going to have? Not are we going to have rules, but which ones? Because all of us live by rules. Now, they may change, they may be subjective, but they are still there. We all live by rules. This fall, in our narrative lectionary study, we are seeking to rediscover, discover grace in the passages that we study that are given to us. Um, so far, we've looked at the original human relationship to God in Genesis 2, the promises of God in Genesis 18 and 21, wrestling with God in Genesis 32, the name of God last week. And each week, we see different facets of individuals relating to and experiencing God. Well, this week, we're going to look at a set of rules that we're all very familiar with. Even, even those who haven't gone to church are familiar somewhat with the Ten Commandments, the idea of these Ten Commandments. But we're going to look, and we're hopefully going to look at it in a different way, maybe, than we've ever seen these before. Because what we're going to see is that the rules we adopt will come to define us. The rules we adopt, whether intentionally or unintentionally, consciously or unconsciously, they will define us. But not only us, but they will teach us and they will define how we understand God, how we understand ourselves, how we understand others. They will also go a long way in establishing what we believe is good, what we believe is true, and what we believe is beautiful. Now, I feel like I ought to stop and pray here again because I'm going to give you a little history lesson on Grace Church. Many, many years ago, as a matter of fact, last time we taught this, the provocative question was asked, do we still have to obey the Ten Commandments? And there was a particular community group that we had in this church that was very adamant that the Ten Commandments were still applicable. And at that time, we made a statement about the Ten Commandments that they were no longer binding under grace. Now, hold that for a second. Don't accept that as what I'm going to say. But this, the, the way that we approached this was actually the straw that broke the camel's back for that particular community group. And they left the church after preaching on this last, the last time we preached on it. So don't grab your books yet. Just hear me out before you leave on this one. But there's a lot of history that goes when we touch on these things. And I believe in some ways, while, while like I said a few weeks ago, the thing is not the thing, like that was really not the thing that was going on with the group. That was just the, like, the last thing that did it. Um, there, is, there is real power in how we understand how we relate to the law, how we relate to, to rules with that. So, 
Well, let's, let's get into this. But I want you to hold this. I want you to hold this in your mind. Do we have to obey the Ten Commandments now? Just hold it in there as we go through the teaching. So Deuteronomy 5, we're reading from the, the New English translation here. We may stop and make a few comments along the way. Then Moses called all the people of Israel together and said to them, Listen, Israel, to the statutes and ordinance that I am about to deliver to you today. Learn them and be careful to keep them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Horeb, the mountain there, is also known as Sinai. Many people think it's the same mountain with that, where he, he walked up. Remember Charles Chucky Heston walking up there, grabbing the big tablets that he carried down? Um, <clears throat> The Lord God made a covenant with us at Horeb. He did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with us. So we've studied the Abrahamic covenant. We've looked at the covenant that God made to bless Abraham. The giving of the law is understood as a covenantal act. In the same way that the blessing that Abraham was given was seen as covenant, the giving of the law is seen as covenant, something as binding, something as reflective of God's nature and reflective of what God wants to do in the world. Uh, He did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with us who are here today, all of us living now. The Lord spoke face to face with you at the mountain from the middle of the fire. I was standing between the Lord and you at the time to reveal to you the message of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and would not go up to the mountain. Now, remember, Moses is recounting this. Moses is recounting all this as kind of his farewell speech. We need to probably understand that as well. Is Moses is talking to the people who are going to enter the promised land, but he himself is not going to enter that land. So this is his farewell speech. This is his blessing, his benediction, his instruction to the community that he's led. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, from the place of slavery. And then he goes into what is known as the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. You must not have any other gods beside me. You must not make for yourself an image of anything in heaven above or earth below or in the waters beneath. You must not worship or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I punish the sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons for the sins of their fathers who reject me, but I show covenant faithfulness to thousands who, keep, who choose me and keep my commandments. You must not make use of the name of the Lord your God for worthless purposes, for the Lord will not exonerate anyone who abuses his name this way. Be careful to observe the Sabbath day. Just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to work and to do all your tasks in six days, but in the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On that day you must not do any work, your son, your daughter, your male slave, female slave, your ox, your donkey, or any other animal, or the foreigner who lives with you, so that your male and female slaves, like you, may have rest. Recall that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there by the strength and power. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your mother and father, just as the Lord your God has commanded you to do, so that your days may be extended and it may go well with you in the land he is about to give you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not offer false testimony against another. You must not desire another man's wife, nor should you crave his house, his field, his male and female servants, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that he owns. And then later on, he sums it up in what's called, as we go down to chapter 6, what we know as the Shema. 
or the, which just literally means listen, hear. Listen, Israel, Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, your whole strength. We later know that those words are gone, that Jesus uses those to say those sum up everything that's come after or come before. Moses goes on, he says, these words I'm commanding you today must be kept in mind. You must teach them to your children. Speak them as you sit down in your house, as you walk along the road, as you lie down, as you get up. You should tie them as a reminder on your forehead and fasten them as symbol to your forehead. Inscribe them in your door frames and on your houses and gates. Now, if any of you have seen an Orthodox Jew, you know that they literally do this. That they'll have a box that will have a piece of text with the Shema written on it. And they will bind it to their forehead. They'll bind the box to their forehead and on their arm. And on the, on the doorpost of the Orthodox Hebrew house, you'll see these words that are there with that. Like they took this instruction literally. Um, regardless of whether we do that or not, this is a pretty decisive instruction, is it not? I mean, when God says, you see something like this, absolutely do this. You must do this thing. This is part of the covenant. You cannot forget it. I think we better pay attention. I think we had better, it would do us well as people who identify as the people of God to really pay attention to what's going on with this. You see, all these things were designed to help the people of Israel understand and practice who they were, who God was, and what was to be deemed good and true and beautiful in a world with very different definitions of these things. To really understand the power, the impact of these commandments, we have to understand where the people were coming from. They were coming out as slaves. They were coming out as people whose entire identity was based on being lower than, less than, being a thing, being an object. Their whole identity was based on being used and abused, being valued only for what they could provide labor-wise to build the empire of Egypt. They also lived in a world that was polytheistic by most accounts at this time. Like, people worshipped gods, plural, in a variety of different ways. And these god, this worship of God, was always a transactional relationship. We will do these things for God so that God will do these things for us. We need rain, so we will pray and make sacrifice to the rain god. We need fertility in our land, so we will pray and make sacrifices to the fertility gods. We need our enemies defeated, so we will pray and make sacrifices to the war gods. This is the context that the people are coming out of. They may have had a memory of, Mo of, of Noah, of Adam, of the patriarchs, but for 400 years they've been in captivity. They have been treated as slaves, and they have had rules imposed up on them. Now again, whether they were conscious of those or not, whether they chose them or not, these are the rules that came to define them. That they were slaves. In essence, 
And the essence of slavery is helplessness. The essence of slavery is helplessness. Well, I have to do this. Well, why try? Why try anything different? Because it can be taken away from me. Why, why put effort into becoming better or doing something good? Because I don't have any control over this. It's not just physical slaves who have that mentality, though. It is often us as well. I don't have any control over my physical condition. I just, I was born this way. This disease that inhibits me or this gender that makes me one way in the world or this thing, right? I'm just like, why try? Why give effort? Well, I don't have any control of the world. I mean, it's Walmart dictates the economy, right? It's, it's all these other things. Well, that's just the way, it, well, I'm just here. Well, this, we live with this slave mentality that we are bound by these other things going. And the thing is, those things are always changing. Those things are always changing. The, the way the world and the rules the world gives us are always changing. And so we're just tossed, torn apart. And so we do one of two things, right? We either say, hey, well, I'm just going to take control. I'm going to make my own rules. Tell with everything else. I'm just going to decide. I'll do what I want to do. I'll do whatever feels good, whatever is appropriate for the moment. Well, that'll get you so far. And then the other way is to say, well, I'll just give up. Why try it all? Why, why exert any effort? The Ten Commandments, the, the law that God gives us, is a definitive call to reject both of those options. It is a way of saying, no, you're not in control. You don't get to decide. You are not the ultimate locus of truth. Your experience, your evaluation of things, you don't orient towards yourself. We talk a lot about this, right? Things, things change. Your perspective changes on where your orienting point is. Well, one of the things the world will tell you is the, orient, the orienting point is you. The orienting point is your desire. The orienting point is your understanding. The orienting point is you, you, you. Well, the Bible clearly tells us where that leads. And it's not good. But the other thing that may seem that is, hey, well, let's put the orienting place outside of us. Let's make it the world or some philosophy or some religious thing out there. And let's let that, we'll abdicate our decision to that and let that rule us. Well, that's different than what this said here, though. What the, what the Ten Commandments do and what all the rules and all the laws of God do is that they properly orient us. They put us in the right place. When we say, okay, these are from God. God is our orienting place, but he is giving us agency in doing this. What it does is creates a relational dynamic that leads us to flourishing with that. The rules are not given to us to inhibit us from having fun, okay? That's the first thing we think of, right? Often, especially, you're just like, oh, God, another list of rules, man. Just another way to prove that I'm not good. I can't do it. I can't go, right? That's not that at all. 
rules reveal to us who we are. They reveal to us what is important to us. They they reveal to us what we believe about God, about God's nature and character. They reveal to us what we believe about ourselves, our own capacity, our own agency, our own worth, our own purpose. They reveal to us what we believe about other people. Are other people likewise created in the image of God? Do they have agency as well? Or are they just things to be used or worshipped? Abused by? It reveals to us what we believe about the world in general. God, ourselves, and others. And that's what defines what we believe as good or true or beautiful. So these rules as covenant are, are an indescribable gift of revelation and orientation to all of us. One commentator has said, for those of us who believe the Creator, the Ten Commandments are the gift of the very hand of God. First three commandments are about our relationship with the Lord. The fourth commandment is a bridge. It connects heaven and earth, God and people. The last six are about our relationship with humanity. Dallas Willard said this, he said, The Ten Commandments given to Moses are so deep and powerful on these matters that if humanity followed them, daily life would be transformed beyond recognition. Large segments of the public media would collapse for lack of material. Consider a daily, well, he said newspaper here. Consider your daily news feed. Eliminate from it every report that presupposes a breaking down of one of the Ten Commandments. What would be left, right? Football scores, maybe. Weather report. So it seems obvious that we have to follow the Ten Commandments, am I right? I mean, it just seems obvious that if these are given for all these things that help us orient, help us understand, help us define, we have to follow them. (coughs) Well, at the risk of continuing the controversy, I will say that is not true. But this is why I will say that. At Grace Church, we follow a Christological hermeneutic which means we interpret everything in the Bible through the person of Jesus. What did Jesus say about this? Because if we don't, we're, we're silly not to be wearing the, like, why aren't we have our little box with the Ten Commandments strapped on our forehead, locked on our arm, on our doorpost? Now, stay with me when I say this. Hold on. Let's see what Jesus said about the Ten Commandments, Okay. Because what we see is Jesus is the second or the perfect, the perfection of the types that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus is the new Adam. He's the new Abraham. He's also the new Moses. So when Jesus comes, Jesus delivers his own Ten Commandments in a way. Jesus tells us how, as Christians, to understand and interpret the Ten Commandments for people who are not culturally Jewish, for us, the church. So let's what he said. Let's see what he said. And, and if you think the Ten Commandments were not important to Jesus, look at Matthew five. Matthew five seventeen. Jesus said this: "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets." Okay, so that includes the Decalogue. That includes the Ten Commandments. 
I have come not to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the law will pass until everything takes place. So anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, whosoever obeys them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So it may sound like I'm treading on pretty serious ground when I say we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. Well, again, hold with me because I believe what Jesus said. I believe that when Jesus came, it fundamentally changed our orientation towards rules, towards the law. It gave us a way. We understand, we understand, Paul taught us that the law, the Old Testament, was a tutor, a teacher. Something to prepare the way for Jesus. Something to teach us about ourselves so that we would be able to receive the gospel at the right time. Jesus comes, he reveals the gospel. The law has accomplished its purpose. It still has things to teach us. Jesus shows up. And I'm, I'm taking this from Matthew 5 through 7 now. I'm not going to read it in its entirety. It's a lot. But I want to look at how Jesus related specifically to these things in the law. Well, let's start with no other gods, right? That was the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, right? That sounds awesome with that. Well, Jesus took it a step further. He said, look, no one can serve two masters. Now, he was talking specifically about money there, but it, it relates to this in a very real way. Is Jesus said, not only, not only are you to worship the Lord your God, <clears throat> but that allegiance is supposed to be absolutely soul, that there is to be no competition with this. And remember, we've talked a lot about this at Grace, where Jesus would say, hey, you've heard it said, but I say to you, this is a whole lot of Jesus saying to us. This is a whole lot of Jesus saying, you've heard it said, don't serve other gods, but I'm telling you, listen, don't even have, no other masters, like soul, allegiance, 100% heart obedience, physical obedience there. The Decalogue says not to use God's name in vain. Jesus goes even further and he says, look, don't use God's name for your own purpose. Keep it quiet. When you do something good, don't tell anybody. Don't go around tooting your own horn. Don't go around using God as a vehicle for your own glory. Don't go around using your own obedience or your own, your own good works as a way for your own glory. You're, you're sullying God's name when you do that. He said, don't make any idols in the Old Testament. Jesus says, well, don't be religious. It's a word that's entered our vocabulary, the religious. Don't be religious. Don't play the game. Because I'll tell you right now, in American evangelical Christianity, there are a lot of people playing the game. There are a lot of people using religious observance, religious terminology, religious things to get their own way to advance their own agenda that has nothing to do with God's. And they make idols out of it. Jesus says, don't play the game. Jesus gets very specific when he talks about murder. The Old Testament says, hey, don't murder. Just 
do not murder, three words, right? Jesus says, no, 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 I tell you, don't even, don't even have anger in your heart. Don't even judge people. You know how judgment is linked to murder? When we pass judgment on someone, when we say, you are not worthy, you are not capable, you are not this or that, we pass judgment on them, we are literally doing violence to them with that. Jesus takes this whole do not murder thing and takes it to a whole nother level. He says, I don't, even want you to, I don't even want you to come to worship if you've got anger in your heart towards someone. Like, go get that right and then come and worship. Don't even get near it. Like, he took, he took where the line was and moved it so far back in this. He did the same thing with adultery, right? The Decalogue, honestly, the Decalogue in some ways is pretty easy to keep. If we just stuck with the Ten Commandments, coveting, I'd have a hard one with that. But I've never killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. As far as I know, I haven't worshipped any other gods. I've never made an idol that I know of. I've told a few lies, but for the most part, I've kept most of the Ten Commandments, I would say. But keeping Jesus' commandments, that's a whole other deal. The way Jesus defines them, that's, that's a whole other deal with this. Jesus said, hey, don't, he said, the Decalogue says, don't commit adultery. He says, don't even look at another person with lust. That's tough. Don't covet. Here's the one, right? Well, okay, I struggle, right? We're struggling, man, I love that guy's out in Colorado this last week looking at all the sprinter vans going all jacked up, four-wheel drive, bikes on the back. It was tough not to covet. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not even that. He says, give your stuff away. Whoa, wait a minute. Like, not only am I not supposed to covet what someone else has, when someone comes and asks me for something, I'm supposed to just give it to them. Like, I'm supposed to give away the stuff that I have. And I'm not supposed to worry about tomorrow. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Not only don't covet what somebody else has, don't even pay attention to your own stuff all that much. Somebody asks you, give it away. And if you have a need, ask your Father in heaven who knows what it is. He totally changes our relationship to stuff, to things, to what we understand is secure. The Old Testament says don't lie. Jesus says don't even make an oath. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't, don't only not lie, but don't even swear. Like don't make any oaths. Just speak what is true, period. Now there's a couple that Jesus doesn't seem to comment on. At least in Matthew 5 through 7. The thing about the Sabbath now, later on, he, he talks extensively about the Sabbath. He says the Sabbath was not, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. So he reorients on the Sabbath later on in different places. And the part, part with honoring your parents. Later on, he says, listen, you're to love God more than your mom and dad. More than your siblings as well. Even more than your children. So he, he eventually gets around to all ten commandments. And gives commentary on them. 
in a way that radically reorients our understanding of them. So here's the thing. In the midst of all this commandment giving, I think we can discover grace. The rules are a gift to us. Whether they're in the form of the Old Testament, whether they're in the form of Jesus' commentary that comes later. These rules are a gift to us to understand who we are. To understand who God is. To understand what is good and true and beautiful. They're also given to us as a way of bringing chaos. As much as Jordan Peter's book you know, promises to bring order to the chaos, it really, look, it's just another, there's some good practical stuff in there, but it's not, it's not ultimate, it's not eternal. What we're talking about here is, is eternal. A way of ordering and living as we go through. It's not so much that we don't obey the Ten Commandments because they're wrong or they're irrelevant or we can't do them or anything like that. It's just that that's like baseline. Like we're supposed to be, we're, we can't stop there. I can't envision any scenario where obedience to Jesus would call us to murder someone or to lie or to covet or to steal. But we don't not do those things out of an obligation to the rule. We don't not do those things because of who we are. Because of who Jesus is revealing himself to be. Who Jesus is revealing us to be. We are to become the kind of people who would naturally not do the things that are prohibited. We are to become the kind of people who would naturally do the things that we are commanded to do. That's the goal. See, the rules are not the end. When we make the rules the end, we miss it. We miss the point. And they become taskmasters, and we go back into the slavery of Egypt. The call of the gospel is to live as free people. Free people who obey these things because we get to, not because we have to. Free people who obey these things because we see them as what they are, telling us what is good and true and beautiful, what brings flourishing to our lives, to our inner health, to our personalities, to our relationships with one another, to our communities, to our world, to our planet. These are the things that teach us and lead us in that way into a flourishing. Now look, we're all broken. I get that. And we all need boundaries because we forget. We get tired. We get cranky. We get bent out of shape. And we forget. We forget who we are. We forget who God is. We forget what we're supposed to be about. And so the rules remind us. They remind us. But it's always to draw us back. Draw us back to that place where, of course, we would do those things. Not out of obligation, not out of guilt, not out of threat, not out of bribe, but because it's true, because it's beautiful, and because it's good. The only question left is, will we? Will we do that? Someone asked the worship team to come up.
And as we think about this, the rules being a means and not an end, as a list of not have-tos, but a list of get-tos, we need to understand that we are given the choice to live our lives defined by what is good and true and beautiful, by what God says about us, by, about what God declares about us to be true, or we can take that into our own hands. We can make our own rules and wreak absolute havoc and destruction on our bodies, on the world, on our relationships as a result. Or we can just retreat and say, I'm just going to live by somebody else's rules, and as a result, live the consequences of watching life escape from us. But it starts now with that choice. Will we do this? Will we submit ourselves fully to God? To what God says is true and good and beautiful. And that starts at this table. And Jesus, see, Jesus didn't just leave us with rules. That's the ultimate hope. Unlike other religions where the founder of the religion dropped a philosophy or dropped a bunch of rules on people and then left and said, good luck. Go get them. Jesus came among us. Jesus embodied all that. Jesus embodied everything that was true. He showed us what it's like to be a flourishing human being, a human being fully alive. And in that flourishing, he was also giving, he sacrificed. Jesus sacrificed himself for us so that we would be unhindered in our access. So there would be nothing that separates us from love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that's represented at this table. It's represented as we take the body, as we take the blood, as we remember, as we are regathered, and then as we are respirated out into the world as ambassadors, image bearers, little Jesuses to go and declare the power of this word. So we don't dismiss by rows here. Come as you feel led. Hold the elements together. Sit close. And then we'll take them all together in a moment. Thank you for being here. Mm-hmm.